Welcome back to Home Gastronomics, where we strive to bring the professional chef into your home kitchen. Good news, we're working on getting added to iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Help us along the way with a Facebook like, Twitter, Instagram, and follows. And if you're feeling really ambitious, consider becoming a patron for a small monthly donation. This episode, we'll be talking about something that is as loved as it is hated by home cooks. A backyard barbecue favorite, the humble hamburger. We also have a special double word of the day. Let's get right to it. This versatile dish can run the gamut from small to large and simple to complex. Most home chefs make burgers, but they're often not the same as some gourmet burgers you find in restaurants, and may actually be closer to the fast food examples you might find in some major chains. How do we elevate this to a whole new level? We're going to walk through this from the beginning. First, selecting your meat. There are two things to keep in mind when choosing what to use for burgers, the type of meat and the fat content. So many times it's been said that fat is flavor, and this stands true with burgers. The juiciest and most flavorful burgers have higher fat contents. By law, the maximum fat content of any ground beef or hamburger is 30%, which is commonly written as 70-30. You also need to know the difference between ground beef and hamburger. Ground beef can only be made from skeletal muscles, mainly the primal cuts and the fat trimmings associated. No variety meats such as organs or additional fats can be used. Hamburger, however, can add fat to a lean mixture to reach the desired fat content. A leaner, less expensive cut of beef is often mixed with fat to create a more affordable ground meat product. This would be called hamburger. Therefore, the main difference is exactly how the fat content is reached. The most common fat content for burgers is 80-20, meaning 80% lean, 20% fat. 80-20 will give you a juicy, flavorful, medium-rare to rare burger without being too greasy and resulting in a soggy bun. If you prefer medium-well to well temperatures, 70-30 might be better so the meat doesn't dry out with the longer cooking time. One of the best cuts of meat for ground beef and hamburgers is chuck. It has the closest fat content from 15-20% to and is loaded with myoglobin, which you can contribute the rich red color and beefy taste to. Sirloin and round are common, but they're very lean cuts, which can lead to dry burgers. Sirloin is also one of the most expensive cuts. Now that we've got our 80-20 ground chuck, we need to form the patties. You don't want them too small or too thin, because then you'll end up with overcooked fast food burgers. Too big, and you risk not being cooked through before the outside burns. A 4-ounce patty is good, but I prefer a 6-ounce patty. The 6-ounce will still have a good size when the fat melts and the burger shrinks, as this always happens, and it will better fit some of the larger buns that you would prefer for a gourmet burger. You can form patties in two different ways. If you want to drop $10 to $20 to get a patty press or mold, 
Just portion out the amount of meat into the prepared press and mash away. If you prefer to do it by hand or don't have a patty press, portion the meat out onto some wax or parchment paper into small balls. I like to use an ice cream scoop. Then press the meatballs down in the center and in from the outside to prevent the edges from cracking. Keep working it in this manner and turning it in your hand until it is uniform and even. It should be a solid and compact patty. Thinner or depressed in the center and slightly larger than the bun you'll be using. You do need to follow a few simple rules when making your patties. First, keep everything very cold. This will help the patty to stay together. Second, handle your meat only as much as needed. The more you handle it, the more likely it is to fall apart. After you get the patties made, get them back in the fridge to cool back down. This also applies to cooking it. Flip it as little as possible to avoid the patty breaking. Third, try not to use liquid ingredients when forming your patties. They add some great flavor, but end up making it more difficult to keep the burger together while cooking. You can always add them in after cooking. Lastly, don't press your burger while it's cooking. You'll squeeze out all of the juices and end up with a horrid dry burger. One other thing we can think about while we're forming our patties is fillings or mix-ins. We did recommend avoiding liquid ingredients, which will lead you to the more dry spice rubs and the like. We do have the options of some things we can add into the meat mixture. Some nice caramelized onions would add an incredible depth, as would some finely chopped and sautéed mushrooms. Cheese would be amazing, but you risk it melting out of the burger while cooking and then just becoming a wasteful experience. The ideas are really limited only by your own mind and imagination. Just remember any cooked ingredients should be cooled down before you mix them into the raw meat, and of course, to follow the rules we talked about above. Cold. Don't overwork. No liquids. And don't press! If you think we're ready to cook our beautiful burgers, you're half right. We need to decide how we're going to cook them. For me, the best tasting burgers are grilled over charcoal. The smoke seeps into the meat and adds yet another layer of flavor that my tongue just dances for. That being said, a busy life often means I don't want to spend the time setting up the charcoal and getting it ready to actually cook. So my go-to has always been a propane gas grill. There are some very well-respected folks out there that are against propane claiming that it gives a gassy, off taste to food. I'm just going to say, either I've never encountered this, or I might just enjoy that gassy flavor. You also have the option of pan cooking it. I really recommend using a dry cast iron pan if you're going to do this. The heating properties of cast iron are excellent, and the pan being dry will help you to get a better sear. Sometimes, other factors than your preference can influence your cooking. We recently moved and the grill I had was in pretty bad shape from years and years of faithful service. It just wasn't worth bringing it with us. We left it in the clean-out and haven't had a chance to pick up a new one yet. This, of course, means I'll be using my faithful cast-iron grill pan. Whether you're cooking with a cast-iron pan or the grid on your favorite grill, remember that you want to preheat your cooking service and get it good and hot. This will help prevent the fruit from sticking, and give you a nice, quick, hard sear. What happens is that metal expands as it is heated. 
Since metal is porous, as it swells, these pores close up. If you put your meat into a cold pan, as it heats, it will act like Velcro, and your food will stick to the metal. We've also talked last episode about the moisture content of food and the effect that this has on food resulting in steaming it instead of allowing it to sear properly. It bears saying again, I don't think anyone likes drab gray meat. More time on the heat also means that meats, including your hamburger, will overcook and toughen. One good way to tell if your pan is hot enough is to flick a few drops of water into it. The water should sizzle and evaporate immediately. Your burger should do the same thing as soon as you place it onto the cooking surface, immediately sizzling so that that sound and smell assault you all at once. You'll want to heat the pan over medium to high heat to gently bring the temperature up. Cranking the hell out of the heat could warp or ruin your pan before you have the pleasure of cooking in it. After a few minutes, throw a few drops of water in. If it doesn't sizzle, wait a few more minutes. As you get used to your pans or your grill, you'll learn how long preheating takes to get to the right temperature. Our pan is pretty hot since we've been talking, so we're ready to throw the meat in. You'll hear different ideas of how many times to flip your burger. Some people claim only flipping once is the best way for a one-inch thick burger. This might look something like cook on one side for about four minutes, flip and cook four minutes on the other side, or until your desired doneness. Others have said to flip your burger constantly to prevent one side from cooking too much. My problem with the constant flipping theory is that you're not giving it enough time to get any kind of sear before you start messing with it. You also risk your burger breaking the more that you mess with it. Remember our second rule from above, don't overwork your meat. This includes flipping it. A while back, I worked in a burger joint and had a fellow chef tell me something that changed the way I look at cooking burgers, and I still follow it to this day. It involves two flips. When you put your burger down, you leave it alone for a few minutes until your sear develops. You can check it by slightly lifting it, but the trick that was taught to me is blood rises. When you see the blood start to pool on the surface of the burger, it's time to flip. When you see the blood start to pool on the top of the burger again, you flip it the second time and add your cheese. Let it sit a bit longer to finish cooking to your desired doneness and get ready to rock a juicy and tasteful burger. Don't forget to let your burger rest. There are two conversations about toppings. One about hot toppings and another about cold toppings. Hot toppings include cheese and might also include things like caramelized onions or sautéed mushrooms if you didn't mix it into your meat to begin with. There are so many choices with cheese, and plain old American just isn't one of them. Swiss is an excellent choice, going especially well with the sautéed mushrooms. Gouda is another good choice with fantastic flavor and complex depth. My cheese of choice, possibly my absolute favorite, is quality, thick-sliced, smoked cheddar. The sharpness of the cheddar mixed with the hard smokiness gives me a sense of joy that few other foods do. By now, you should see how everything is coming together and be ready to eat. We're still not done yet. We're only halfway there. We mentioned buns earlier. Bread is one of the most important parts of any sandwich. 
so your choice should be very carefully thought out. The options for buns are numerous. A sesame seed roll is a classic, but it doesn't add much to the experience. Pretzel buns are gaining in popularity, but you have to keep in mind the makeup of a pretzel. The dough is very dense with a stiff crust. This is great for standing up to the juiciest of burgers, but it's pretty tough to bite through and really runs the risk of everything sliding right out the back of the bun when you bite into it. Kaiser rolls are probably my second favorite. They are hearty with tons of air pockets to make it soft on the inside, but still enough to take the moisture of a well-cooked burger. My favorite and possibly most other people's favorite as well is a brioche roll. Brioche is durable thanks to the slightly dense crumb and its ability to soak up the succulent juices. However, it's still soft and full of flavor thanks to the higher content of egg and butter than many other breads. I do think it's important to point out that since brioche has become so popular for hamburgers, there are many brioche buns available on the market. These are not quite the same as a good brioche roll, though. There is something to be said about a roll being used for a sandwich. They're usually a bit larger and not a uniform cookie-cutter style like mass-marketed hamburger buns. Overall, any of these choices will really elevate your next hamburger beyond the standard white bread store brand hamburger buns bought in packages of eight, and of course we'll want to toast the bun a little bit for more flavor. Let's move on to the second key to a great sandwich, called the spread. This encompasses a variety of options that you might put on the bun as a barrier against the juices of our burger. Simple items might include ketchup, mustard, or relish. If you really want to go for the biggest pop, perhaps you can make a custom aioli, which is a fancy term for flavored mayonnaise. A standard aioli uses garlic, but this is another area that is limited only by your creativity. Add some good flavors and you have your own special sauce, like a garlic and roasted red pepper aioli. You could also create a fancy relish using finely chopped pineapple and red peppers for a nice Hawaiian flair to your burger. If you're running short on time, or not in the mood to get wild with your food, you can still step it up beyond the standard with some store-bought sauces such as a good Thousand Island dressing. Spread a little bit on the buns and it's instant flavor. We talked about our hot toppings. Now it's time to talk about cold toppings. These are the realm of lettuce, tomato, pickles, raw onions, and the like. I prefer a nice kosher dill spear on the side with my burger instead of the sliced chips on the burger. We've already talked about the benefits of caramelizing your onions instead of just raw onions on your burger. This leaves lettuce and tomato, which even for a staunch anti-vegetarian, belongs on a burger. With so many varieties, though, how do you know which to use? Not all lettuces are created equal, and they have different uses that are better acclimated to the different types. Iceberg is probably the most common lettuce around with a crisp mouthfeel, but slightly lacking in the flavor department. Romaine, with its firm texture and slightly bitter-to-sweet flavors, are excellent, but the long leaves make it better acclimated to salads, not burgers. If you like a peppery kick, you can go with a lightly dressed arugula. Nothing will speak better to trying to elevate to gourmet level than arugula on your burger. A little bit simpler, but by far the best option is one of the butter lettuces. Either Boston or Bib. Both have sweet and hearty leaves. The Bib is slightly smaller and would fit a little bit better on the bread for us. 
the best tomatoes, and the favorite for sandwiches of all kinds is the beefsteak. This large tomato can get as big as a pound or two and has a sweet, meaty texture without a lot of internal seeds and gelatinous membrane. It's widely available in grocery stores. If you slice it from side to side, you have the perfect crisp addition. You might also consider adding a few slices of bacon, which is always a winner. You do need to ask yourself, though, is it really worth cooking a whole pound package of bacon just for a few slices? Um, excuse you. Hell yes, it is. Bacon is awesome. Hey, quiet in the back there. Simmer down. For me, when I'm only making a few burgers, I don't feel it is. Of course, if we're hosting a cookout, then I'll do it every single time. To get your mouth watering all over again, let's review our elevated burger. We've got our toasted brioche roll with a spread of Thousand Island dressing on the bottom and a swirl of ketchup and mustard on the top bun. A perfectly medium-rare ground chuck and caramelized onion burger topped by a couple of slices of decadent smoked cheddar cheese. A single leaf of bib lettuce and a slice of beefsteak tomato. A crispy garlic kosher dill pickle on the side and we're ready to eat. And bacon. And bacon. Maybe next time. The only thing missing is a good side of homemade french fries. But that will be a conversation for a different episode. Like I said earlier, we have a special double word of the day treat for you. They're kind of important since they relate to our perfectly grilled and tasty hamburgers. Our first word is sear, which is to brown meat quickly by subjecting it to very high heat in either a skillet, under a broiler, or in a very hot oven. The object of searing is to seal in the meat's juices. Wait, what? This has since been shown to be scientifically inaccurate as the juiciness of meat comes from the fat content, which is why poultry dries out so easily since it's low in intramuscular fat. And the process of searing actually evaporates moisture. Searing is all about building flavor, which is due to something called the Maillard reaction. The Maillard reaction, also known as the Browning reaction, is the chemical reaction between a reducing sugar and an amino acid ordinarily caused by heating. Explained by Louis-Camille Maillard in 1912, the reaction influences the flavor and texture of food by browning it. It happens when meats are cooked, bread is baked, eggs are fried, or vegetables are sautéed and roasted. In slightly simpler words, the Maillard reaction occurs when sugar is caramelized in the presence of protein. The aromas and flavors that are caused vary from food to food and cooking method to cooking method. But they're based on the different sugars and amino acids in the reaction. If you ever remember enjoying the smell of bacon cooking or the rich flavor of fresh baked cookies, this is all because of the Maillard reaction.
That's what we've got for now, Padawans. Join us again in one month. Until then, feel free to drop us a line on our website, www.homegastronomics.com or Home Gastronomics on Facebook to let us know how your burgers came out. You can even share your favorite burger combinations with other fans. Remember, if you like what we're doing, give us a like or follow on Facebook, at TheChefChewy on Twitter, and Home Gastronomics on Instagram. If you really like it and want to keep us going, think about becoming a patron by giving a small monthly donation. Becoming a patron comes with all kinds of fun benefits. Links to become a patron are on our website and our Podbean podcast page. Until next time, keep cooking, and may the food be with you.